Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I am one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is delightful to see each one of you. Uh, Thank you for taking time uh, to join us this morning as we seek and engage with God. Uh, Will you please join me as I pray? Dear God, we give you great thanks for this day and for your presence in our lives. God, I ask that as you do when we gather together, you speak to us in a way that is different from when we are on our own. God, there is something unique about us being together in the way you can speak to us when we are in this space seeking you and engaging with you. And so I pray you would meet us in this space, you'd open our hearts and minds uh, to just to be available to you uh, and what you would have for us this morning, and that we would leave here uh, being transformed. We would leave here being more like you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are beginning our fall sermon series, which I'm so glad because it's way easier to say than summer sermon series, which I fumbled through a hundred times. Fall sermon series feels so good. Uh, But it's going to take us up through Advent, which is weird to be talking about Advent, but it's in there. Um, and, And we couldn't be more excited about this new series in the book of Acts. And what we like to do when we start a new series, specifically when we're going through one of the books of the Bible, is we like to give some context for the book, some things that might help us uh, kind of understand uh, what's going on in the background, so to speak. Um, And the book of Acts is really Luke part two. So Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. Uh, And the two books were actually originally circulated as one collected work. So any towns they were sent to, anything like that, they were sent together. But late or early in the second century, what happened is there was a drive to get all the Gospels together in sort of one clump and send those around. And so Luke part one and part two got separated out and Luke, uh, the Gospel, went with the other Gospels. And the other one, volume two, was left on its own and was renamed the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, which we often shorten simply to the book of Acts. But this connection with the gospel of Luke is important. In fact, I think that uh, we can't look at the purpose of Acts uh, without taking into consideration the purpose of Luke's gospel. They can't be isolated apart because the two make up one whole coherent uh, piece of uh, literature. And so I want to read the very beginning of Luke and the very beginning of Acts, and I think that will help give us some idea about why these were written. So this is Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." So that's Luke writing to his friend, Theophilus, saying, my purpose in all of this is to give you an accurate account of the things you've been hearing and the things you've been taught. And here's Acts 1, just the first couple of verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And so we have this continuation of the purpose of the Gospel of Luke, which, again, was to give this accurate account of what Jesus did and said, and then to continue to explore what Jesus is doing in and through his people, and specifically the work that was done after he ascended, which is the moment we're going to step into uh, today. And so that's some of the background, but I want to pause for a moment, too, because I think there are a couple of things I want to talk about beyond the the context and the background there uh, and some of the things that have been going on Uh, as we came out of the book of John and getting ready to go into this book. Um, 
Anytime you're going into a, a book of the Bible, it's okay to just dive in, but you do want to dive in with a certain, I think, frame of mind. Um, when we went through the book of John, this clear message that kept coming up over and over was that Jesus' complete devotion, allegiance, and his great intimacy with God allowed him to abide, to live and move and have his being in the love of God in such a way that he was able to operate in a way that was outside of the voices, the prompting, and the timeline of the world. And that he operates and continues to do that, not by the world's agenda, but by God's will. We often talked about how Jesus didn't do what other people wanted him to do. And even when he did, he didn't do it the way they wanted him to do or in the time that they wanted him to do it. And it wasn't that he was being rude or cruel, but it was mostly due to these misunderstandings, these misperceptions that people had about Jesus. And so they didn't know how he was going to do things. They didn't know when and, and in what way. Because Jesus is bigger than we can know. He's different. He's mysterious. And yet, he's the same. He's, he's one of us. He's a human being. And as we discovered last week, he wants to sit and have breakfast with us. He desires intimacy with us. But we often don't know what to do with that. We don't know what that really looks like. And so we often imagine a Jesus that's different, that fits our desires and our needs. And I bring this up because the theme of this ongoing story of God, this reality of God being bigger and, and kind of operating in ways that we don't understand, it's just going to keep on going in the book of Acts. Jesus continues to do things that show he's in complete synchronicity with God and the Holy Spirit. And out of this, he continues to do things that are out of sync with how the world wants things to go, and in many ways, not fitting into how, he, how we want him to be. And in Acts, you have this added reality of the movement of the Holy Spirit in a new way that, that is the underlying movement of pretty much the entire book. The Holy Spirit's present from verse 2 to the very end of the book. And so we have all that stuff going on that we came out of from the book of John. That Jesus is moving in a different way, and now we're going into Acts, and the Holy Spirit's going to be there. And there are some things that as we were going through that, and as I was getting ready for this, that started cropping up in me that I wanted to share with you to help, I think, prepare us to get into this book. And the first, I heard uh, some things from this guy named Peter Rollins, and some of you may be familiar with him. He's kind of out there guy. Uh, but some of the things he say, said really resonated with me. Uh, and the first one was that uh, we often think of God, he used these two terms. One was super being and one was hyper being. And the super being is just a bigger, better version of ourselves. And lots of times when we think of God and we talk about God, that's, that's who we think of. We think of a, a bigger, better version of ourselves. But what we find is when we go through our daily lives and we go through the world and, and all the things going on, that bigger, better version of ourselves can't do the things that God does. And so we have this God who's beyond being. He's not just a bigger, better version of us. He's beyond the things we can think or imagine or talk about or any of those things. And, and if that was it, that would be enough, I think, for us to worship and go, oh, this God is amazing. But yet God is one of us. In Jesus Christ. So God is not super being. And some would say, well, then he's hyper being. But he's not just even hyper being. He's beyond that. And then Rich and I were talking the other day about uh, some stuff. He had been at this camp. And one of the things they were talking about there was how we identify ourselves. And that sometimes we say Christian. We might say I'm a disciple of Christ or I'm a follower of Christ. And how those different labels mean different things. Like if we say I'm a Christian, that means I've been transformed. There's something different about me. Right? There's something new. I'm not how I used to be. I give myself a new name. But it also has this feeling of like something happened and it's all done. I am this now. 
Or if we say I'm a disciple, it has this sense of I'm, I'm studying, I'm a student, I'm, I'm listening to, I'm engaged uh, with Christ. If we say I'm a follower of Christ, a Christ follower, that has this sense that Jesus is going somewhere and I'm following him wherever he would go. So I started thinking about those things. And I started thinking about this reality that I think we often respond even to our beliefs about Jesus instead of an actual encounter with Jesus. Right? So I have these things I believe about Jesus. And, and we might say that's fine, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use um, my marriage as an example. If Angie goes away somewhere and I cannot communicate with her, I rely on the things I believe about her to be true to inform my understanding of her because I can't encounter her in that moment. So that's a fine time to rely on my beliefs to inform me about who Angie is. But we don't serve a God who's silent or distant or not present. Right? So so this idea that we respond to our beliefs, which are insufficient to describe God, instead of responding to an actual encounter we have with God, I think is troubling. And when we get into this book, this book of Acts, we are going to find that people are responding to actual real live encounters with God. And that the beliefs they have are even being challenged and changed and renewed and reformed. And so I hope as we get into this that we're ready for it. So with all of that, let's read Acts 1, 1 through 11. If you have your Bible, you can read along there or it'll be up on the screen behind me. And again, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Um, But the authority of this iPad just decided to reset. So let's get back to where we're supposed to be. Uh, Yeah. Oh. It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's coming up here in a second. Uh, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, verses 1 through 5 is just really an introduction. It's kind of Luke getting us caught up to what's been happening. And it's obvious he intended this to be a second volume or at least a second part to his gospel. He's saying this is the things that we covered in the first book. Everything that Jesus began to do and teach till the day he was taken up, which is where we find ourselves this morning. He also says he's given some commands to the disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he's presented himself alive through many proofs uh, to his disciples during 40 days after his resurrection, speaking about the kingdom of God. We also read that while Jesus was staying with them, he ordered them to stay in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and that that was going to happen in a couple days. And So that's the scene that Luke sets. Jesus has shown up to his followers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, talking about the kingdom of God, telling them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. 
So now we break into our story for today. And with all the resurrection stuff happening, all these visits, all these things that Jesus is saying, we find the disciples have a question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? We see the disciples still struggling with their understanding of who Jesus is, what he's about, and what he's going to do. F.F. Bruce says that the apostles evidently maintained their interest in the hope of seeing the kingdom of God realized in the restoration of Israel's national independence. One of the common realities in the Gospels is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the Jewish religious leaders and many of the Jewish people had certain ideas of what the Messiah was going to be. Chief amongst these were the ideas of warrior and king. That the Messiah would overthrow any oppressive governments and restore Israel to its rightful place of the people of God and the blessed people of God. And that that was going to look a certain way. And that they along with the Messiah would usher in God's kingdom and rule in the world. So there's this idea even amongst the disciples that Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and give Israel its independence back. That was the way they thought about the Messiah. That's the way they thought the Messiah would look, and that's how they thought things should happen. Now, just a quick side note here. We often see the disciples in two ways. One, they're brilliant, right, doing all these crazy things. They're brave and courageous, uh, things that we don't think we could ever do, so we don't expect our lives to look like theirs, or they're ignorant and foolish, and they're almost beneath us. We also don't expect or want our lives to look like theirs either when that's the case. But if you notice, throughout the New Testament, the disciples are both, just like us. They're strong and courageous at points, just like we are. And they're confused and scared at points, just like we are. And everything in between, just like we are. So if you feel confused or full of faith to the point that you're just as unnerved as when you're confused, you're in the right place. And you're in good company. Keep pressing in when you feel those ways. Because there's nothing wrong with being confused. It's more how we respond to being confused. You see, the disciples, in their confusion, go to Jesus and ask him, are you going to do this? And he says, nah, it's not for you to know. But they were honest with him, right? They didn't try to act like they had everything together. They just went to him with their honest question. I think too often we try to pretend like we have it all together because we don't ever want to be wrong. We're terrified of being wrong and what others would think of us if heaven forbid we said something that didn't make sense and so we we put up these walls and we pretend that we've got it all together we do the same thing with God and that's both lying and absolutely unhelpful uh, in terms of our growth and so you got to remember we're dealing with the creator of the universe we're not going to get everything uh, that's going on so um, but but it's in that that we create these smaller versions of God because that's more manageable uh, and maybe something we can even control um but that's not the God we worship, thankfully. Um, but so Jesus responds to this question they have. Are you going to restore uh, the kingdom to Israel? And he says, that is not for you to know. And I wish Christianity as a whole would really grasp onto this concept. Because the time and the seasons that God has fixed by his own authority are not for us to know. And there are a lot of people who spent a lot of time and effort trying to figure this out. And what it adds up to is staring at the sky. Right There's this moment we're going to get to where these people ask, why are you staring at the sky? And Jesus is even saying that. Don't be bothered with that stuff. It's not for you to know. But, Jesus says, but, and but is a word that is used to introduce something that's contrasting with what has already been mentioned. So Jesus is saying, 
I know you're asking about the kingdom being restored, and I know you've got all kinds of ideas about that, but it's not for you to know. But instead, however, what you can know, in fact, what you must absolutely know, is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, I wonder, even though this is kind of mid-sentence, I wonder if in that crazy way your mind can start thinking things in the middle of having a conversation with somebody, if the, if the disciples were like, oh, okay, there it is. That's what we're talking about. Still not what we thought. Like, it's not going to be Jesus taking over everything and overthrowing the government, but maybe that means the Holy Spirit's going to come and give us power, and we're going to go overthrow Rome. And we're going to take over, kind of like superheroes or the Avengers or the Justice League or the X-Men or the Justice Machine or the Defenders or, sorry, you might not know all those, but my own life there, okay? So it's, they're thinking this is awesome. Maybe that's what we're going to do. We don't know that's what they thought, but Jesus' follow-up seems to indicate that they may think something like that. Because so far in all of Jesus' appearances, he hasn't given a plan. All the times Jesus has shown up post-resurrection to his disciples, one of the things I think we've been waiting for is, okay, now that you're back, what should we do? Right? What's the action plan? What do you got for us, Jesus? We saw last week that he didn't do that. Even when he sat with his disciples alone on this beach, he wanted to have breakfast instead. But this is the plan. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And I kind of want to unpack those a little bit. He says in Jerusalem, this is both a big deal and not a big deal. Uh, things in Jerusalem aren't easy for sure, but that's, their, that's where they're at. They're familiar with that space. It's familiar ground for them. And so some of that's going to be easy. They don't have to do a lot uh, in Jerusalem. All Judea and Samaria. Now, uh, if you look at this map... You can see uh, you've got Jerusalem kind of in the lower third, uh, right there above Bethlehem. And that uh, sort of orangish area is Judea. And then up above it, that kind of, I don't even know what that color is, pale, yellow. Uh, that's Samaria. So it's not a huge area. They're just spreading out from there, and they're right next to each other. It's not like he's saying, geographically, go from this end to that end. But culturally, he's saying, go from this end to that end. In terms of people who hate each other, he's saying go from this end to that end. Because these two regions do hate each other. Listen to John 4, 9. This is uh, the story of of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, Jesus has asked this woman to, to give him a drink of water. And the Samaritan woman says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you were Jewish and you were traveling from an area lower than Samaria to up north of Samaria, you would go down around the Dead Sea and out around, or you would catch a boat in Joppa and come up above Samaria because to go through any of Samaritan land or any villages would make you unclean. And even the Greek here is interesting because uh, in the Greek it has this word both in there that you're going to go both to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, if I count, that's four. So both doesn't quite cover four. Okay, so even if we lump Judea and Samaria together, which to do so would have been craziness to think about, there's some other groupings we have to do. But those two are being put together in the same sentence. And for Jesus to even say that would be craziness. But who do you hate? Who will you have no dealings with? Who, when you see them 
coming down the street, will you jump over to the other side so you don't have to interact or speak with them? That's where Jesus says we're to go. Think of all the divisions in the world that exist. Those are the places where Jesus says his disciples and his followers are going to go. And they're not just going to go. They're going to go and be his witnesses. And that witness is going to form a bridge that brings these people together. Hatred is going to be overcome. People are going to be reconciled to one another. And so then Jesus says that that's not it, but you're going to go to the end of the earth. And to be honest, I don't think the disciples even know what that means. Right? If you say, if you say that to me, I have a, an idea of that, but I just think of a, our planet from outer space, like this big round ball, and I'm like, uh, maybe, I don't, uh, yeah, whatever that means. I guess all the earth, maybe. But for the disciples, especially coming off the content of the previous statement, it really means you're going to go anywhere and everywhere. In every situation, on every single place in the planet, beyond what you know of, beyond any situation you can think of, that's where you're going to be. It's like Samwise Gamgee in um, The Lord of the Rings. And he, you know, this line is the, is the edge, and he's running, and he all of a sudden he stops. And his traveling companion Frodo's like, what are you doing? He's like, if I go beyond this, I've never been further than this outside of the Shire before. I don't know that out there. Right? That's what it's like. We don't know. But Jesus is saying those are the places you're going to go. And it's big and scary and mysterious and awesome. But that's where you're going to go. It's at this moment that Jesus then floats up into the sky. It's a very odd moment. The timing is odd. Here I'm just telling you this big thing and it's kind of vague and sounds really hard. And then I'm just going to float up. And you probably have lots of questions. Maybe you want me to say goodbye, a hug, something. We don't have any indication that any of that happened. And that's all we get. And I'm going to say there's a lot of speculation about, especially the part about Jesus returning. He's going to return just the way he left. I'm going to say uh, my take is that Jesus left in power and glory, and he's going to return in power and glory. And it may not be in a cloud, but I don't think that's the point. Um, So we move on. The next thing. These uh, disciples, they're staring up at the sky, and suddenly there are two strangers dressed in white or in white, white robes there. And if we learn, have learned anything in the Bible, it's that when strangers in white robes show up, something's going to happen, so maybe pay attention to them. Uh, and so uh, they ask the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you staring at the sky? This Jesus who is taken from you will come in the same way as you saw him go. And the implication here is that something else is supposed to be happening. Why are you still here staring at the sky? I have a short video clip I want to show you that I think helps illustrate this fantastically. Uh, These are, uh, you guys are all aware that lots of movies have post-credit scenes. Uh, This is one of those uh, that I think is very helpful for what we're looking at today. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. Ferris Bueller is telling people who have watched all the credits, they've seen all the things that are there, and he's saying, 
Now the movie's done. There's something else for you to do. Something different you should be going after. How many of us know what we're supposed to do but are still staring at the sky? Jesus has told them what to do. Go wait in Jerusalem. In a few days, the Holy Spirit's going to show up. And then this witness fest is going to happen all over and in every situation you can think of and beyond that. And it does start happening. In Acts chapter 2, we have this event that we refer to as Pentecost. And here the disciples have all gathered and they're praying and the Holy Spirit shows up in this dynamic, demonstrative, expressive way like dynamite. And here's what we have. This is a map of uh, the area, that red square in the middle is Jerusalem. Okay, It's where they're all gathered. We have this list of places in Acts 2 where it says all these people from areas around are gathered in Jerusalem. And what happens is, is as these people from all around are gathered together, the disciples, this moment where the Holy Spirit shows up and they start speaking in all these different languages, speaking in tongues. And so the people from all these different places hear them and then those people go back out to the places they were from and share their genuine experience, their encounter. Now let me show you the places that are listed as places where people are from in the book of Acts chapter 2. That's a pretty big range. I think. All those places, all the way over in Italy, God's country, um, where we see, uh, right? So, so, but what we see is this huge spread start to happen, and that's awesome. This is God saying, now I'm launching this thing, right? This is now going. But if we read ahead in Acts chapter 8, they're still in Jerusalem. They're, they're witnessing in Jerusalem, and that's Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. But there was also this other part, that you're going to go. And so in Acts chapter 8, there's all this persecution that starts happening, and the church is split up and scattered all over the place. And I'm curious about this, because I do believe that God is okay with things being hard for us, with things being difficult for his people, sometimes unbearably so. And so part of me wonders, did the disciples, were they supposed to go and they didn't get going and, and they didn't get going and they didn't get going and God's like, well, now this is what, what's going to happen. Like this persecution is going to happen and then you're going to be spread out. And maybe that's the, that's the way it was going to happen and maybe there's going to be persecution whether they went out or not. But, but what I get is that neither option is going to be easy. If they stay, they get persecuted. Maybe if they go, the remnants get persecuted. When they go, they have to encounter all these new cultures, all these other people who don't like them. They're going to go into Samaria and try to start spreading this message. They're going to encounter all kinds of trouble either way. Neither's going to be comfortable. Neither's going to be easy. And I'm going to share something here uh, about our church. Our church has been around for about 40 years. I've been a part of this church for almost 19 uh, so about half of that. <clears throat> so I can't speak to the time before that. But one of the things I've noticed about this church since I've been here, both as part of the congregation and as part of the, the, the staff, the leadership team, is that our church has a cycle. It's got a pattern where people start showing up, numbers start to grow a little bit, and then they kind of plateau, and then it starts to dribble down, and then it either starts to come back up again or it dribbles way down. And then we come back up out of that, and we get here, and then we float up a little bit, and then we go way down. And it's this pattern. And I'm troubled by that. 
Because sometimes it's because people leave and sometimes it's because we just don't show up as consistently. But for whatever reason right now, we are beginning to see a dribble down. And we are beginning to see our collected, gathered presence in this neighborhood shrink. And I believe, and as Rich and I have talked, we believe that we're going to keep going through this cycle until we do some things differently. And this passage sort of touches on this, but we see that the disciples are to change when power comes on them through the Holy Spirit. They're transformed, and they join a community that has a clear mission to be witnesses. We receive a new identity in Christ to be world changers by being Christ's witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit in every place we are and in every situation we are in, and beyond that, especially ones where hatred and division exist. Now, if you have a a new identity and you have a sense of belonging, but you have no mission, then you're a really effective country club. And if you have a mission, but no transformation, you have a fantastic humanitarian organization. We are to be a people transformed with the divine presence of the Holy Spirit in us, gathered together with others on a mission that goes beyond us. And it's frustrating as a person who's been both part of the congregation and leadership not to say our church hasn't done this, but that I haven't done this. I can't tell you. Well, first of all, I want to say too, please, please don't hear me saying that I'm looking down on the people who have gone before us and in this church's history Um, I feel like it is on their shoulders that we stand to get to this point where we can acknowledge that we need to take this next step. But I think more than me saying, oh, the past has been rough and the past we didn't do this, I think it would be more dishonoring to those people that we not take the next step than just me up here saying we haven't done that or they didn't do that. We are transformed people with a mission beyond us. And I couldn't be more excited to be in this time with all of you. You are the people, we are the people that God has called to be in this place, to go out, whether it's in Wedgwood or to our other neighborhoods where we come, up north, down south, to the east, to the west, doesn't matter. All the situations we're in, we are the people that God has called from this place to go and be his witnesses. Are we going to do that? I'm so excited about this time. So, and I'm scared, and it's unknown, and it's mysterious, because we're going to be doing new things. We're going to be trying new things. We're going to be moving in new ways, and we're going to see some new stuff. But I want to ask if we'll dare to venture out into lands we don't know, even though they're our own neighborhoods, our homes, our classrooms, playgrounds, grocery stores, parks, workplaces, you name it. Because as Rich and I have talked, and I think as I've talked with many of you, we're not okay with this pattern. We struggle with this pattern, and we want things to be different. And so if you want that, if that's what you're looking for, something that's moving forward, something that's changing and growing, then this is your place. And if you're not, then maybe this isn't your place. And some people would say me saying that is is ridiculous as a pastor to say to people in here that maybe this isn't the place for you. But I am so confident that this is the direction that the Holy Spirit is inviting us to go that I can say that. Usually at the end of our service we have 
connection card questions, and I don't have any for today. I would just like, if you do have your connection card um, that came in your bulletin, if you have any responses to our sermon today, whatever, whatever God may be stirring in you, whatever thoughts you may have, you could write those down in there and put them in the wood boxes on your way out. It's a great way for us to hear uh, what you're thinking, but we also invite you to come and talk to us too. Um, I want to invite the worship team up. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we will continue in our worship with another song. Dear God, I acknowledge that uh, in, in the things that, that we've talked about this morning, um, I, am, I am not pointing fingers in any way that doesn't include myself. And, and, and God, I also want to honor the people that have been going out and have been your witnesses. But Lord, I think as a church, there's something we haven't done. We, we haven't pushed through this, this level that I feel like you keep building us up and saying, and now you're built up and go, and something happens. And so Lord, we want to press into this with you and ask, like, is this the time you're going to do this? And you say, no, that's not for you to know. Okay, well, what do we need to know? Well, you're going to empower from the Holy Spirit to go and be my witnesses in every situation, in every place you're in. I pray we would get stoked about this. I pray you would stir in us a fire that we care for the people around us in such a way that we almost couldn't help being a witness. We almost couldn't help but care for the people around us. God, and when we get exhausted, I pray you carry us. I pray we carry each other. We help each other. And I pray we'd see something different and new. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.